That was good, wasn't it? I know it sounds kind of silly to us, but uh, way back in the 1830s and 1840s, way back in the days of our great-great-grandparents, there were many people who were apprehensive about getting on a train. Uh, the train was this new invention, and many people were not convinced, they were not sure it's really safe to ride in one of these things. I mean, some of those trains could reach speeds of 40 to 45 miles an hour. And never had our world seen people move from one town to the next so quickly. In fact, back in that day, there were all kinds of articles in the newspapers warning people this kind of speed is dangerous. And there were many doctors telling people that moving that fast could have a harmful effect on the human body. So naturally, people were concerned, is it safe to ride on a train? Now today, we look back at that and we just laugh because today we can hop on a plane and we can travel almost anywhere on this planet and we can travel at speeds that are 10 times faster than any of those trains. But I wonder if maybe our great-great-grandparents noticed something, noticed something that we should be thinking about too. Maybe it's not the speed of the train that should alarm us, but what should alarm us is the speed at which we move through our daily lives, racing from one assignment to the next, moving so fast we don't have any time to develop a significant relationship with another person, moving so fast we don't have time to feed and take care of our souls. That's why to me, I, I so appreciate the truth of Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 10. To me, the truth of that verse is just so very important. That's where the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Now notice the order. You've got to be still before you can really know God. You've got to be still before you can encounter the Lord in a meaningful way. Before the revelation comes, before you have an opportunity to really experience and enjoy His grace, His truth, His glory, before any of that can happen, you've got to take the time to be still. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be still? Well, the Bible gives us two pictures to show us what that looks like. Exodus chapter 3, here's Moses. He's out in the desert. And he's taking care of some sheep. And all of a sudden, he notices a bush. A bush is on fire, and yet the bush is not burning up. I mean, that whole bush is just being consumed with flames, and yet not a single twig or leaf of that bush is being destroyed. It's the strangest thing. I mean, Moses has never seen anything like this before. And so he, he comes close to get a better look. And as he gets close, he hears the voice of God, Moses, Moses. And all of a sudden, Moses realizes he's about to have a special moment with the Lord. But before that meeting can go any further, before God can really identify himself and reveal the plans that he has for the nation of Israel and show Moses what he has in store for his future, before any of that can happen, Moses has to do something first. Basically, God says, hey, Moses, before this conversation goes any further, take off your shoes. Moses, remove your sandals because the place where you're standing, it's holy ground. Now, the same thing happens in this scripture that we're going to look at this morning in Joshua chapter 5. It's the night before the battle of Jericho, and Joshua, the general, the commander of the Israeli army, he, he can't sleep. He's nervous. I mean, he's just pacing back and forth because he realizes he and the army of Israel have never encountered a challenge like this before. So because he can't sleep, he leaves the tent. He comes out to take another peek at the battlefield to kind of take a look at the situation one more time. And as he's standing there staring at Jericho, this well-fortified city with its double set of walls, he begins to realize, we don't have what it takes. There's nobody in this army that has the right kind of equipment to fight a battle like this. We don't have the battering rams. We don't have the catapults. We don't have the moving towers. We don't have the ladders to climb over obstacles like this. How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to win? 
And while he's trying to sort through all this, there in the darkness of the night, all of a sudden he realizes he's not there alone. Out of the corner of his eye, he spots another soldier, a, a warrior with a sword in his hand. And because of the darkness of the night, Joshua can't tell, is this an Israelite or Canaanite? So he grabs his sword and he shouts, friend or foe, identify yourself. And as the warrior begins to speak, Joshua quickly realizes this is no mere man standing there. This is God. God's here. I mean, now you talk about Joshua being caught completely off guard. God is here. What does he want with me? Well, before he can get an answer to any of those questions, he's got to practice the truth of Psalm 46.10. Before the revelation can be received, you've got to prepare yourself to receive that revelation. So God says to Joshua the same thing he said to Moses. Joshua, take off the shoes. Remove the sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, what's the significance behind this phrase of taking off your shoes? What is so important about this? I mean, what did that mean back in Bible times? Well, there's four basic ideas involved in this very simple action. Number one, taking off the shoes could be a sign of respect. Typically, in the ancient world, it was only the servants who went barefoot. So taking off the shoes was a way of showing others, I am willing to yield to your authority. You're the boss. You're in charge. I am here to serve you. Secondly, taking off the shoes was a, an indication that you're ready to slow down. In the ancient world, you never wore shoes in the home. The shoes were always left at the door. When you got home, you came home so you could rest and relax to slow down. Now, yeah, the next day, start of a new day, you're ready to go to work, you want to hit the ground running. So first thing you do is you step out of the house, you put on the shoes because you got all these short chores and duties to attend to. But at the end of the day, when the work is done and you came back home, you take off the shoes because now... You need to sit still and be quiet for a while. Now, at the end of the day, you need to reflect on the day. Kind of evaluate what went well, what didn't go well, and how can I do things better tomorrow? And in order to do that kind of deep thinking, you got to stop moving. you got to sit still. you got to give yourself a chance to process. Thirdly, taking off the shoes could be a sign of confession. During the course of a day, especially with the kind of shoes that they would wear back in Bible times with their sandals, during the course of a day, you pick up a lot of dust and dirt. So taking off the shoes was a way of saying, I'm, I'm coming clean. I'm willing to expose myself. I'm willing to just be honest about who I really am. No cover up here. So taking off the shoes could be a sign of respect. Taking off the shoes was an indication you're ready to slow down. Taking off the shoes is a sign of confession. Hey, in this journey of life, I've picked up a lot of things in my heart, my soul, and they don't belong. And I want that stuff removed. I want to be clean. And then number four, taking off the shoes was an act of humility. The shoes are a man-made creation. The shoes represent what we make, what we can form with our own hands. Here are the things that we've achieved, the things that we've accomplished, the things I can do, I can make, the things that we wear to impress other people. But by taking off the shoes, you're showing I'm ready to remove my stuff. I'm ready to set aside all the things that I typically stand on and depend upon to get myself by. And now instead of it being in the shoes, now I stand on the ground, that which the Lord has made. So by taking off the shoes, you're saying you're no longer going to rely upon yourself, what you can do and what you can make. I'm now going to rely and depend upon God. Now, I think there's a little bit of all four of these elements in this Scripture we're going to look at in this encounter that Joshua has with God. So Psalm 46 is like a commentary on this scripture. Be still and then know that he is God. In fact, that expression that the psalmist uses to be still, 
It's one word in the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, rafa. Many times it just simply means to stop. Other times you can translate it this way, to drop, to let go, to abandon. So this expression, be still, has this idea of surrender. Let go of your agenda. Set aside your schedule. Forget about your plans and your way of doing things. For the moment, just stop all your activity. Let go of all your concerns and complaints. And for just a moment, take off your shoes and submit yourself to the Lord so that now you can hear what He wants to say to you. So now He is free to have His way in your life. Now, hopefully that's what we're going to learn as we look at Joshua this morning. Hopefully what we're going to learn today is that if you really want to draw near to the Lord, so now that he's free to pour out his grace and his favor upon your life, you've first of all got to be willing to surrender yourself to him. Watch how this happens. Joshua chapter 5. Now when Joshua is near Jericho, it's late at night. He's come out of the tent. He's kind of scouting things out because he's feeling the pressure. I'm the leader of this army, and, and I'm not sure how to prepare my men for this battle. We've got nothing in our previous experience to, to relate to a moment like this. I mean, we've never faced this kind of an opponent before. I mean, you look at the size of those walls, the, the massive defenses. We don't have the weapons or the technology to overcome all these obstacles. What are we going to do? And while he's worrying and fretting about this, all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he knows a stranger. As Joshua that night was standing there scouting out Jericho, he looked up and he saw another man. Another man standing in front of him with a sword drawn. The sword's already drawn out, meaning he's ready to fight. He's ready to engage in battle, but fight against whom? Do you begin to feel the drama of the moment? You know, say one night's late at night and you're sitting there in the house. You're sitting there all by yourself watching TV. The rest of the family is gone for the night. You're not sure how soon they may come back. So as you're sitting there all alone, all of a sudden you hear a noise. It's the doorknob on the back door. It's rattling. It's, it's obvious. Somebody's at the door. How do you feel? <laughs> well, it depends. If that's one of your kids who came back home because they forgot something, you run to the door and open up because you're happy to see him. But if that's a thief at the door, somebody trying to break into your place, you don't want that intruder in your house, so you leave the door locked. You quickly grab the phone. You call the police, and then you look for a place to hide because you're scared. You see, you cannot deny the fact there's somebody at the door. There's somebody trying to get into my house. I mean, you hear the noise. You see the handle moving. You can't deny that. But what you don't know at this point is this friend or foe. That's the drama Joshua's feeling. Watch how he responds. So seeing that there's another man there with a drawn sword, Joshua went up to him. Get that? He didn't step back. He moves forward. You see the courage? And he asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Are you one of us or one of them? Now, here comes the surprising answer. Verse 14, neither. In other words, Joshua, you're not asking, you're not asking the right kind of question. Joshua, when you begin to realize who it is that is standing here, when you begin to realize who it is that is speaking to you, you're going to realize the question is not, is God on our side? No, the question is, are you on God's side? You see, tomorrow, Joshua, you're going to realize it's not a case of Joshua and the army of Israel fighting the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. Tomorrow, what he's going to discover is God will fight the battle of Jericho. And God will give you instructions as to how you can join him in that battle. So watch how God identifies himself. He says, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, as the commander of the army of Yahweh, I am now here. Joshua begins to realize there's another army involved in this battle, the army of heaven. 
And he realizes he's now talking to the commander of this army. He realizes he is in the very presence of God. So watch how he responds. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, in an act of worship. And he asked, what word does my Lord have for me? What message does my Lord have for his servant? Well, that's where the lesson of Psalm 46 comes in. Before the message can be given, you have to prepare yourself to receive the message. Before God begins to give the instructions, which he will, the very next chapter, chapter 6, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, God will lay out all the details of what Joshua and all the Israelites are supposed to do for the next seven days. But before he can give Joshua that kind of insight, that kind of understanding, first of all, Joshua's got to get himself ready to receive that message. So notice verse 15. Then the commander of Yahweh's army replied, Joshua, take off your shoes. Remove the sandals from the place where you are standing, because the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What's Joshua learning? Joshua is learning the responsibility for Jericho does not rest upon his shoulders. The battle belongs to the Lord. And by taking off the shoes, he is showing his faith in that fact. He is now surrendering his full allegiance to the Lord. Think about it. If Dwayne Johnson were your father, you know, the guy that everybody refers to as the rock, the big guy with all the muscles, the guys that we see in all these movies. If Dwayne Johnson were your father and you came one, home one day and you discovered the lid on the pickle jars on too tight, would you have any reason to be worried? Oh, no, not with a father like that. Or if you were the daughter of Bill Gates, you know, the billionaire, the guy who used to run Microsoft. If you're the daughter of Bill Gates and you're having trouble with your computer, should you have any cause to be concerned? I don't think so. Or if one day you're trying to tie your shoes and the shoestring breaks, but your brother happens to be Phil Knight, the founder and owner of Nike, the shoe company. Man, if you've got connections like that and you've got a broken shoestring, do you have any cause for concern? No, not at all. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I mean, you know that you belong to the Lord and you're getting ready to run into some rough waters. Can you trust the Lord to see you safely through that storm? Yes, if you know and understand who he is. If you really know and understand and appreciate who it is, it's going to be helping you. One more example. Consider how the Apostle John learned this. Let's get a New Testament example of this, this lesson we've been learning from the Old Testament. In the very last chapter of the book of John, here's Peter and John and a few other disciples. They're out in the Sea of Galilee trying to catch some fish. They fish all night long and don't catch a thing. I mean, the next day the nets are empty. So the next day, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're ready to call it quits. When a stranger standing on the beach throws out some advice. Hey, guys, I know it was tough last night, but give it one more try. How about you cast the nets on the other side of the boat? Try it over there. Now, I'm sure at first, Peter and John are kind of irritated. Who is this guy to give his advice? We're professionals. We spent our whole life out here in this water. We know it better than anybody else. We, we can tell when the fish are not biting. Who are you to tell us what to do? But though they may have been thinking that, they didn't say it. Instead, Peter and John and all the other disciples in the boat kind of look at each other, kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess it doesn't hurt to give it one more try. So they take the nets and they cast it on the other side of the boat. And the Bible says immediately they caught 153 very large fish. Do you see? Their knowledge, their skill, they got nothing. But one word from this stranger on the beach, and all of a sudden they bring in the catch of a lifetime. Who is this stranger standing on the beach? Well, it's the Apostle John who's the first to recognize him. Guys, it's Jesus. It is the Lord. 
Now, here's the lesson. It's a lesson on discipleship. In the whole book of John, there's only two times when you actually hear John himself talking. Only twice in that whole book do you ever actually hear the voice of John. The first time is in John chapter 13. It's the night before the cross. The 12 disciples are gathered with Jesus in the upper room celebrating the Passover. And that night, Jesus says, one of you is about to betray me. Wow, that shakes them up. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they talk about this moment too, they say the same thing. Every one of the 12 disciples, they begin to say, oh, no, it can't be me. Surely not I. Is it I? And John himself asked that question. Is it I? Because John, like any true disciple of Jesus, he recognizes, hey, on any given day, I'm capable of turning my back on Jesus. On any given day, I am capable of stumbling and falling. I don't want that to happen. How do I keep my heart pointed in the right direction? Well, here's one answer to that question. Look where John is sitting. On that night, John chapter 13, he's in that upper room. He's sitting right next to Jesus. The shoes are already off. His dirty feet have already been washed clean by Jesus. But the Bible tells us he's not just sitting there. No, while he's right there next to Jesus, the Bible says he's actually leaning on Jesus. How do you keep your heart pointed in the right direction? Every day you've got to lean on him. But here's a second way to answer the question. Consider the second time you hear John talk. Last chapter of his book. They've been fishing all night. They haven't caught a thing. With all their knowledge and skill, they've got nothing to show for it. But one word from Jesus and everything changes. And suddenly all the disciples in that boat begin to realize this is no mere man standing on the beach. It is the Lord. Now, to me, the lesson is clear. You won't win by relying upon yourself. You can't win unless you're following Jesus. Are you really following him? Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Do you, every day, take time to just be still so you can know him and trust him? more and more. Do you every day mentally and spiritually take off the shoes just so you can surrender and submit yourself to him? Let's pray. God, we need you. That's why we're here today. We're here to confess we need you. God, you're the only one who can save you're the only one who can change and transform our lives. You're the only one who can make things right for us. So God, right now, we willingly, we eagerly surrender ourselves to you. Because God, what we want is this. We want you to have your way in our lives. And so we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.